a big thank you to all my patrons who support the Engineered Mind podcast. Hi and welcome to the Engineered Mind podcast. In this podcast, we cover topics such as engineering, artificial intelligence, neuroscience, and other interesting topics to educate, inspire, and engineer people's minds all around the world. I'm your host, Yusuf, and for this episode of the podcast, I'm very excited to welcome Reuven Lerner to my show. Reuven is a full-time Python trainer. He teaches courses at companies in the United States, Europe, Israel, India, and China, as well as to people around the world via his online courses. Reuven created one of the first 100 websites in the world just after graduating from MIT's computer science department. He opened Learner Consulting in 1995 and has been offering training services since 1996. Reuven's most recent book is Python Workout, a collection of Python exercises with extensive explanations published by Manning. He has a bachelor's degree in computer science and engineering from MIT and a PhD in learning science from Northwestern University. In this really interesting podcast, Reuven and I talked about the parallels between learning a spoken language versus a programming language, his book, Python Workout, advices on how to escape the infamous tutorial trap, how to avoid being sucked into work, and topics like the biggest misconceptions people have about Python in the beginning. For updates on upcoming podcasts, projects, and videos, make sure to follow me on Twitter as well as on Instagram. To join my weekly newsletter, engineermind.sh, where I share exclusive content, visit yusuf.substack.com. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Here's my podcast with Reuven Lerner. Reuven, it's really great to have you on my podcast. I'm really excited and thrilled to have you on the show. Um, maybe we always get started with you giving us a one-minute bio. Who is Reuven? What does he do? And where do you come from? And so on. Sure. So uh, I'm originally from the US. I've been living in Israel for about 25 years now. Uh, about 25 years ago, I also set up my own consulting company, which I've been running since then and somehow has paid the bills. Um, and whereas I started off doing programming and consulting and a bit of training, nowadays I'm a full-time Python trainer. So just about every day I'm in a different country, city, company, teaching Python, everything from Python for non-programmers all the way up to advanced Python workshops. Mm -hmm. That's great. Can you maybe walk us through the early days on when you gave actually trainings? You didn't start with Python, right? Right, right. So, so um, the way I started with training, I sort of fell into it. You know, we always fall into these things. So um, I was doing some programming. I was doing some help in various companies. And in those days, uh, when I first started off, it was a combination of Linux and Perl um, and maybe doing a little bit of web server stuff and web development. And I got to one company and they said, well, we actually don't want you to do the programming yourself. Would you teach us how to do what you do? I said, yeah, sure, do that. That would be fine. Um, and so that was my first training ever. Um, and I really didn't know what I was doing, but they liked it and they asked me to come back and do more. And so I always was doing a little bit of training and I was always trying to get better at it. But it was really, I'd say about now, 15 years ago or so, wow, wow, can't believe it, um, that basically someone gave me an opportunity, he said, I was working on my PhD at the time. And he said, um, well, instead of you trying to sell your own training services, why don't you work with a training company and they'll market you? So I started with them. And at that time, they really were not interested in Perl training. That was sort of passe. And I'd been doing a lot of Ruby at the time. And they said, well, no one's interested in Ruby. But they said, oh, you know Python. Maybe you can do some Python training. I said, oh, sure, that's not a problem. And so I started off doing you know, one training every two months. And then it was one training a month. And within a 
I don't know, a year or two, I was basically backed up, um, stacked up with, uh, I don't know, two, three, four months of training in advance. And my calendar was always full. And that's when I realized, you know, I really enjoy doing this. I get a great sense of satisfaction out of it. And there's a huge market for it. And I get paid well. And no one calls me with bug reports late at night. I should just do this. And so when I finished the PhD, I called the training company. And I said, well, I'm going back to doing this on my own. And uh, I guess I graduated, what, like six years ago? So I've been only on my own, only doing training since then. And uh, have never been happier or busier for that matter. Mm -hmm. This sounds very exciting. Um, can you maybe, I think because I'm doing teaching as well, could you give the audience maybe the um, the advantages, but also disadvantages you get from teaching, if there are disadvantages, of course? Look, I'll start with the disadvantages, mm -hmm. um, which are you have to know your stuff. You have to know the material, and you also have to know how to present the material. Um, this is something um, that is known in the education biz as content knowledge as opposed to pedagogical content knowledge. So like you probably had professors in university who were brilliant top of their class and could not explain their way out of a paper bag. <laughs> But you also had some teaching assistants who were not, or even like friends who maybe aren't experts, but boy, are they good at explaining. So the second is actually more important in many ways for doing training. So there are people who know Python way better than I do. Um, but I have the advantage of doing this every day and having to sort of force myself to learn new ways to explain things all the time. So I've gotten good at that. But if you don't like getting up in front of people, if you don't like speaking in front of them, and if you get tired from it easily, um, maybe it's not the best thing for you. Also, it's kind of hard to do mixed in with a full-time job for many people. Um, and of course, like there's all freelance thing of, of selling yourself, which some people don't like doing. But the advantages, I find the advantages are huge. First of all, I'm constantly learning new things. Every time I teach, someone asks me a question I don't know the answer to, I get to learn new stuff. They're paying me to learn and then to explain it back to people. What could be better? I get to meet some super smart people. I get to have a, a sense of satisfaction that if I do my job right, then helping them to do their jobs better and making them more effective, not just in their current job, but in their future career prospects. Um, and as a nice bonus, when there's no coronavirus pandemic, I get to do tons of travel. I get to see all sorts of cool places around the world. Um, you know, see interesting cultures and, uh, you know, be a, be a big shot, uh, you know, person flying all the time. All right. It's not as glamorous as I make it sound, but it's still kind of fun. Mm -hmm. That's so cool. Um, also, could you talk about like, um, because you mentioned you, you like learning a lot. You also learn Chinese on the side. Where do you see the parallels between learning a language, like a spoken language and between learning a programming language? What would you say? Huge, huge parallels. I, um, so, I mean, I fell into the Chinese thing also. When I was working with the training company, they called me up one day and said, would you be interested in us flying you to China to do some training? There's clearly only one answer to this question, which is, yes, where do I sign up? Uh, I had no idea what I was getting into. And before I went on that first trip to Beijing, someone said to me, oh, by the way, before you go, you should learn some Chinese. And I was like, haha, that's very funny. Clearly learning Chinese is impossible, right? It's, it's like learning Chinese. Um, and so I learned some words. I discovered that indeed the people on the street in China do not speak English. Um, and so knowing Chinese, even just a handful of words can really, really help. It, it breaks the ice, it lets you communicate. And so when I came back home, and also when I finished the PhD, I said, hey, I need another impossible task that will take up many years of my time. Um, so I now take more or less daily lessons and it's giving me incredible insight into how to teach, how to learn. So, you know, first of all, 
there's no such thing as I have learned a language, right? I mean, English is my native language, and I'm still always learning new insights, new connections, new history, new usages. And so for someone to say, I know Python, right? There's no such thing as I know it. It, it, You might know enough to do your job, but you're always learning. Um, And so this attitude of no matter where you are, you can still be learning things, I think is important to show in the classroom. And so I'm always showing them. I told you already, like I, I learn things every day. And I'm not just putting on a show when I get excited about learning new things. I enjoy learning the new things. And I want my students to see also that uh, even though I might be an expert, even though I might know this stuff, there's still more for me to learn and connections to make. Um, the second thing is that the secret to doing well, the secret to getting fluent in language is practice. If you don't practice, you are never going to get better, no matter how good your theoretical knowledge is. You have to, as people say in Israel, like uh, in Hebrew, you break your teeth on it, right? Like, you know, you, you, you get it wrong, you make mistakes, and then from those mistakes you learn. And so I have over the years... Uh, I would say in every course that I teach, removed content and increased the number of exercises people have. And people come away more satisfied because they get a sense of, yeah, I'm really learning this, not because they get every exercise correct. Often they don't. Mm -hmm. But the process is important, and the sense of learning and the building up uh, and internalization of the understanding is very, very important also. Um, I'll also tell you, like, every software, like my Chinese teacher, and I have an excellent, excellent relationship with her. I've had the same teacher for, I guess, now like six years or so. She's really wonderful, but every so often she'll say something that like really sets me off. Like, oh, but we learned this word already. Or, and, and I all of a sudden started to catch myself saying such things to my students. I was like, oh my God, that really hurts. Like, they're not asking me to annoy me. They're asking me because they don't remember. And so for me to say, well, as we learned, or we learned this already, helps no one. So um, people, are, people are human. People don't remember everything you say to them. People certainly in a classroom are not gonna remember everything. And so being gentle, being kind, being enthusiastic, and being willing to explain things 10 times if you need to is very important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, you, as you mentioned, you do courses on the side and also have written a book. When it comes to practicing, practicing means doing a workout, if it's in the gym now or on your PC doing Python. Um, Before we jump to the book, um, when it comes to your trainings, what would you say sets you apart from the millions of trainings apparently um, or that I feel are millions of trainings out there? What sets your trainings apart from the other training courses that are out there? So, look, my, my especially my live trainings, but also my recorded trainings, uh, they're the result of many years of doing it, getting it wrong and improving it. Mm-hmm. Um, the analogy that I often make is to a stand-up comic. When you go see a stand-up comic, um, they are delivering the jokes and you laugh. And it's not because, oh, they are really funny, clever people. They might be, but it's also because they have taken each of those jokes and torn them apart and improved them and gone to audiences and tried them out. And only after trying them many times and honing them and editing them have they gotten it better. And the same is true for my training, that basically every exercise I give, every explanation I give, I've given 50, 100 times before, maybe more. And each time I try to pay attention to what works and what doesn't work and tweak it just a little bit. Mm-hmm. So it's it's the sort of, you know, the experience that I've gained in how to really sort of explain things, how to work on things, what order things should be learned in, and what's more important and less important. Um, I also am very happy to say, this is stupid, right? This is bad, or you should not do this, right? I, I, I don't work for Python Inc., not that there is such a thing, but I'm okay with saying, um, you should watch out for the following bad thing in the language, which, because it's an open source language, I'm totally okay with doing. 
if I'm working for a company or something, and I would have to say, oh, my company is great and our product is great. So I, I take advantage of that freedom that I have in working with open source system to really try to give people the insights they need to to succeed and and uh, improve their usage of Python as much as possible. Mm -hmm. now, also, also, my dumb jokes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's also an argument, I guess. I mean, if, if they like it, why not? Um, um, what I also want to ask is, uh, there is always the argument, I mean, why pay for courses if you f can find everything online? I mean, of course, yeah, you said you have the experience and so on, but is there anything apart from your experience in teaching, especially, where you would say, that's why I would personally pay for a course? For example, I do it as well. Sometimes it depends, maybe it's web development or Python or anything else, because I see it in, as an investment in myself. Of course, I, do, I would not have to, because there's many stuff uh online, which you can find for free. What is your argument for actually buying a course and spending money on courses? So it's sort of a combination argument. First of all, um, if you find something that is online for free and of high quality, go for it, right? And there are such things out there. Um, and different techniques and different explanations will work for different sorts of people. That said, um, you know, you can get all sorts of information on the internet for free. Um, and yet I pay for a newspaper. Why? Because I want to have an editor filter through it for me and give me the stuff that's most interesting, most relevant to me. Mm -hmm. um, and in the same way, I think that I've structured my courses in ways that will be most effective. Um, you can, I always tell people, you can learn Python on your own. I mean, heck, I learned it from the man page back in what, 1992, 1993. So it is possible to do that. But why should you have to suffer through all the mistakes that I made and the misunderstandings that I had when I can say, I made this mistake, don't do this for the following reason, now let's practice it and now you won't have that problem. So, you know, why should they pay for a course? Because they're paying for uh, the time that I've spent sort of learning uh, at my own expense, <laughs> you know, my emotional expense, my time expense as it were, um, the lessons that I, I hope they can then use and uh, uh, you know, and improve their work with. Mm -hmm. I think that's a perfect counter example to having actually a training or a coach, training coach who helps you improving your workouts. And workout is a good word because you wrote a book called Python Workout. Python Workouts, uh, actually, because there are so many workouts inside this book which you can teach <laughs> Python with. Um, can you explain who is the, this book for? Is it beginners, intermediate users of Python? Maybe walk us through it a little bit. So, um, what... What would happen is, and this happened a lot over like a two-year period, it still happens sometimes, is people after my course would say, okay, great course, what do we do now? Because there's always going to be a gap between any course and the real world. Um, and they would say to me, well, where can we practice our Python skills that's not on our work projects? Um, and I said, well, I should really put together a book of Python exercises. And I use so many exercises in my course even if I throw tons of exercise at my students, there's still going to be many that I know that I have that they don't get to. So the Python workout book, um, I originally self-published it, and then I republished it with Manning, who were amazing. I really have only the best things to say about Manning's editing and publishing crew, and for their patience with my very, very long writing uh, delays. In any event, um, the book is 50 exercises to help improve your Python. Uh, plus, at Manning's suggestion, and he's a good one, There are also another 150 bonus exercises. So for each exercise, there's another three that sort of extend that even beyond there. So if you go through the whole book, 
you're going to have 200 exercises, each of which take you maybe 10 to 20 minutes, and you're going to improve your you know, Python muscles, as it were. Now, I aim the book content at someone who has been through roughly my intro class, um, which is sort of, so anyone who's read an initial book in Python, taken an intro cl Python class, um, can definitely do most of the exercises. Some of the topics like uh, comprehensions and generators and iterators are a bit more advanced. They would come in a more uh, sort of intermediate uh, course. Um, but I'd say most people can pick that up. Or worst case, you leave that part of the book until you get to something more advanced. My, my initial description of the book was, this should be your second Python book, not your first one. This should be the book you go to, the first book you read or do after you take your first class. But it's not the book to learn Python from at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Got it. Yeah. And uh, also regarding the, um, the learning path, where do you see the biggest problems students have? Like over all your years of experience, where do you see the biggest misconceptions or maybe the big topics people or students struggle with in Python? Ooh, so first thing, like in terms of the syntax and use, it's got to be comprehensions. So comprehensions are this tool that basically pack a lot of power into uh, a for loop where they say, if you have a sequence of some sort or some sort of iterable, uh, let's say it's a list or a dictionary or even a file, and you want to go through every element of that iterable and do something with it, execute some sort of expression on it, Uh, um, so comprehensions will let you do that. Um, the first problem is that people conceptually don't understand what they would be used for. Like, why should I do this? Why should I just use a regular for loop? The second problem is that the syntax is really hard for people to understand. So I see people saying, oh, come on, why should I use these comprehensions? They're incomprehensible, as it were. Um, and it takes them a while to sort of switch their mindset to, oh, this is actually useful. I see where it can fit in. But that, without a shadow of a doubt, is again and again the big stumbling block for people. But there are other conceptual problems in the language also that people have uh, have issues with. One of them would be attributes. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I keep telling, I've been telling everyone who will listen over the last year or two, attributes are where it's at. Um, so attributes are not variables. Attributes are the things that come, they're sort of like a private dictionary and variables. They come after the dot. And once you understand attributes and how they're looked up, that first we look on the object itself, then we look on the object's class, then we look on the class's parent, then we look on the object uh, class, Once you understand how that lookup works, suddenly so many things in Python make sense, whether it's inheritance or method lookup or class attributes. Uh, for years, I was telling people about instance variables and class variables, and I think I did them a disservice because if I described them as attributes from the beginning, it would have been a single, complete, coherent, and elegant picture with one set of rules as opposed to a bunch of different rules that work differently. Um, and I, I mentioned variables, also the variable lookup. Boy, oh boy, if people understood what's known as the LEGB rule, local and closing global built-ins for understanding how variables are looked up, wow, so many people would have fewer problems, fewer bugs. And I, I often argue that if you understand attributes and you understand variables in Python, you know a ton of what you need. Like, you now have a good enough picture to really move forward, and when you have problems, the problems will be sort of obvious or, or much more obvious than otherwise. Mm -hmm. Is this also covered in the book, Reuven? Yes, oh, for sure, for sure. So, I mean, I, I cover these topics, whether it's variable lookup or uh, attribute lookup and how they fit in. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned each of these several times, not going through the whole long drawn out thing, but I, I reference these rules um, many, many times in the book so that people get repeated exposure to it. That's another thing about you know, language learning. Learning at once is never enough. Mm. You need to be hit at it, hit, hit, hit with it 
from multiple angles in different contexts over time in order for it to actually be effective. Mm -hmm. um, what tips would you give people? Because uh, I see myself a bit in there when I when I started programming, for example, in MATLAB, um, not falling into, into this tutorial trap. I do this tutorial, then I do the next tutorial, and the next one, and the next one, and actually never working on projects. What would your advice be? Look, you definitely want to start doing projects of some sort. And those projects can be easy, small things on your own computer. The, the moment that it's something that you have a stake in, that you have an interest in, that's actually doing something practical for you, you will be more motivated to work on it and then to expand it. Someone said years ago that every program expands until it can read your email. So you don't have to go quite that far. But um, so let's say there's just some, uh, here's, here's a simple example. So in producing my online courses, um, I, uh, there was no easy way to find out how many minutes of video or how many hours of minutes of video I actually produced. Silly, but true. So I said, oh, I should write a Python program to do that. Oh, wait, in order to do that, I'll need to be able to parse through MP4 files. How do I do that? And so it became this whole chain of events. And suddenly I realized, oh, this is really useful. I should make this an exercise in my classes. Voila, I have an exercise now. And it involves several stages, right? I always tur turn my own torture into other people's torture. Um, but basically, it's a small enough project you can call an exercise, but it's something that I still use just about every day when I'm recording courses and videos. So one easy thing is to find something on your own that you can do. But you want to also be mentored by someone. You want to get advice from someone who's more experienced. Um, and so a really good way to do that is to find an open source project and join it in some way. It doesn't have to be a big, well-known project. It doesn't have to be a really important project. The important part is that you are contributing and you're getting feedback and you're also feeling great that you're contributing to something bigger than yourself that people are enjoying. Um, I'll admit I'm very bad about doing this. I have not participated in many open source projects because I'm just so incredibly busy. But I've definitely you know, submitted bug reports, submitted you know, patches and so forth, submitted pull requests. And when they accept it, it is just like a fantastic feeling. Um, it's less fantastic, let's be honest, when they say, oh, well, we would take it, but it's got problems here and here and here. Um, but that is a, a necessary part of the learning curve, getting feedback, feeling a bit bad about it, and then making sure you'll never feel bad about that again, and then feeling bad about something new. Uh, there's actually a, a, a theory of learning called social learning theory um, that says that the way you learn things, you don't measure, like we typically think about learning as um, sort of like a pre-test and a post-test. Mm -hmm. So before you learn something, we test you, and after you learn something, we test you. And in theory, after you've learned it, you will do way better on the test. But social learning theory says, no, no, no. What we're going to do is we're going to measure how central are you to a community? How many people are turning to you with questions as opposed to you turning to them with questions? And how peripheral versus central are the tasks that you're doing? And so when you start off in, say, an open source project, you'll do these peripheral tasks. You will work on some bug reports. You will write some documentation. You'll write some tests. And as you get to know the people better and the software better, you will take on larger and larger and more and more responsibility until it you will find that people are starting to ask you questions because you are actually an expert. And that's, again, something you can feel very proud about. And that process of learning and developing is invaluable to your technical skills. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think programming also involves a lot of work. As you said, it's always iterating, learning new things and constantly keep learning. This also implies sometimes that you like, could like, be sucked into work and forget about other things which are important in life. Can you maybe talk about, about this from experience maybe, where you only worked and worked and worked and forgot about the important <laughs> things of life? 
very easily, unfortunately. So, I mean, I'm married, I have three kids. Um, I've always been self-employed. And even though I graduated from university close to 30 years ago, for a very long time, I basically kept up my university sleep and work schedule, which was sleep a little, work a ton, and when you're not at work, do things that will help you do work. So, you know, I would be reading, I'd be writing, I was working at my magazine column, I'd be learning more technologies. Um, and it took many years before I realized, wow, I should really like take some time off. I should take vacations. And like we would take family vacations and I'd bring my laptop and I would make sure that every night I was checking email and talking to clients on my cell phone and arranging things and doing things. And this was not healthy. This was not healthy for me. This was not healthy for my family, for my relationship. Um, you need some downtime. And I discovered that if you take time off, here, here's a big secret, folks. The world does not end. And your business does not collapse. Shocking but true. Um, and it's okay to tell your clients, I'm going away for a bit. I'm not going to be available. They will understand because, again, shocking tip, they are human as well. Um, now, I'll admit, this became way, way, way easier when I started doing training because suddenly I was scheduling time whenever I wanted to. I mean, obviously, my clients have some say in the time as well. But basically, I then set out what weeks of the year I want to take off with family for vacation or for holidays or for conferences. And my clients know that those days are unavailable, and so I can even relax. Now, sometimes that's not going to be true, right? So I was just telling you before we started recording that, um, you know, yesterday I, I taught 12 hours. Next week I have a monster week. Well, for five days in a row, I'm also going to be teaching for 12 hours. I will be a wreck afterwards, a happy wreck, but a wreck. But um, so there are still times when I just, like, crank it up. But I really try, and especially lately, over the last six months or so, um, I've been, I changed my schedule completely. I started going to sleep early, getting up very early, taking a very early morning walk. I take a walk for about two and a half to three hours every morning through as many parks as possible. I relax, I listen to podcasts, and then I can come in and start my day. And I just feel so much better than if I were just cranking, 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 learning software stuff. Mm, yeah, this is, this is really excellent advice. I'm trying to implement it into my life, hopefully. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Um, you, you I'll, also tell, I'll tell you, by the way, my, my, my family laughs at me, right? Or it's for a while they were laughing at me because for a long time, I would, okay, get up at six in the morning, but I'd also be going to bed at like two in the morning. And the notion that, like, so we would have dinner together and then everyone in my family would go to sleep and then I'd still be up working. And so the, they would, they, they've been laughing like, it's 9 p.m. and you're already tired. Is this like, is this the room we knew? And they've gotten used to it and they find it somewhere between amusing and I guess impressive now. But I feel great. I feel great about it. So they, they can laugh, but I can do that. This is really important and I think excellent advice from I really appreciate it. And I think the audience will also appreciate it a lot. So I, I have another question for you, which is not related to programming. What are your three favorite books not related to programming? What would you say? Oh, okay. So I've read, I really like to read. Um, and I, I typically read a lot of nonfiction. Don't read very much fiction at all. Um, so this year, I, I, this year I've actually gotten to read a fair number of books. Uh, that's also another thing. Like in going to bed early, I discover I can read in bed. What a pleasure. So one book that I really, really enjoyed, uh, Adam Davidson is a journalist who I've been following for years and years and years. He was on NPR. He was in the New York Times. He was at the New Yorker. Now he's doing some independent stuff. So he wrote uh, a book called The Passion Economy. Mm -hmm. um, and it's all about how... It's no, if you want to survive in business, 
And that means also as an employee, but especially as a freelancer or as a business owner, you need to find a unique angle. And his stories are fantastic and diverse and interesting. Um, and in fact, he actually mentions in his book uh, this ice cream parlor in New York City. And he goes on and on about how it's this amazing ice cream. And I'm sort of rolling my eyes and saying, okay, like ice cream is ice cream. Then I said, wait a second. I've heard of this place before. And I went downstairs. And I said to my kids, guys, when you were in New York last year, what was the name of the ice cream place they went to? And they said, oh, my God, it's the best ice cream ever. And it was this place. So it turns out that you can really make an impact that way, not just in the world of ice cream. He has many examples. Um, but I think it's a, a fantastic, important book for people to read if they're in business. Uh, what else have I enjoyed recently? Oh, so I'm also uh, into politics and society and uh, so forth. So John Dickerson, who, I've, again, I've enjoyed his work for many, many years, um, he wrote this book called uh, The, I think it's called The Most Impossible Job in the World, uh, something like that. And it's about the United States presidency. And yes, again, it's about politics, it's about history, it's in many ways an indictment of Trump and how he has not done any of the things that any U.S. president was ever, like, ever did, and for all sorts of reasons. But it's also a fascinating book studying leadership and how what what you need to do to be a good leader and how you compartmentalize things and how you um, balance taking advice from other people and make your own decisions. Um, I think it's a, a, a good a good book in that sense for sure. Um, oh, I I I, I read I, I, I those are two two of the ones that stick out now. But uh, lots of other books also on my shelf and uh, on my Kindle waiting to be read. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, what I also want to ask you, let's say the phone rings now an 18-year-old Reuven picks up the phone and asks you for advice. What would you tell him? So I knew from a young age that I wanted to have my own business. Um, I was always interested in it. Like my, my parents taught me to read the newspaper every morning from the time I was young. And so from the time I was, I don't know, 10 years old or so, I was reading the newspaper and I started with the business section. I love reading the business section. Um, so I knew I was going to run my own business, but I didn't know much about running a business. My parents are not in business for themselves, so they couldn't really give me advice. So I would take advice from whoever I could. And when I started my business, um, I got advice from someone, which was truly the worst advice I've ever received from anyone in my years. And he said, never turn down a client, always say yes to them and do whatever they want. Now this sounded brilliant at the time. Okay. I'm going to say like, We all want to satisfy our clients, right? We want to satisfy our customers. Who would want to do that? No, 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 no. I spent so many years chasing my tail, basically reading up on every possible technology so that I could say yes to every possible person who called me. And so I became so, uh, uh, I don't want to say diversified even, so shallow in my knowledge of so many things um, that I didn't really appeal to anyone in particular. The, uh, the analogy that I've heard people make is, and I realize it's a little dated, if your uh, sink is clogged, your toilet is clogged, and you open the yellow pages, and you're going to see pages and pages and pages of plumbers. And then you're going to see someone who says, we fix clogs, right? So they are aiming at a narrow market, but because they're aiming at a narrow market, they're not for everyone, but when you need them, boy, they stand out. And so that's what I've learned over the years. That's why that advice was so bad. So my advice to my 18-year-old self would be, Pick something, it doesn't matter what, specialize in it, and you will at some point change specializations, that's okay. Um, but don't be afraid to say no to people and to turn down work because that will be to your advantage in the medium to long term. Mm -hmm. So you would also, 
get some sleep. That's that's also good advice. Um, so you you would rather be a specialist than a generalist. Right. Look, my my personal inclination is generally be a generalist. I'm interested in everything. Yeah. I love learning things. Right. And I know a lot of a lot of smart, accomplished people are the same way. Um, so this is a marketing strategy. It's not a, a life strategy necessarily. But as a marketing strategy, you can say to people, I, like I, I used to say, um, you know, whatever technology you use, I will help you use it. I will build a website with it. I will consult with it. I will teach it to you. First of all, now it's just impossible. Back then it was semi-possible back in the early days of the web. Now, forget it, forget it. But moreover, the people didn't know, like, should they call me? Whereas nowadays, I was at a train station in Haifa a few years ago already. And I sit down at the train station waiting for my train. This guy sits down next to me, looks at me and says, you're Reuven, you do Python training, right? That basically, I was so now closely identified with his specialty that people knew and remembered, and it pays off. Because now, uh, just yesterday, I got a call from a company, and I said, where did you hear about me? And he said, well, I was talking to a friend of mine who works at another company, and they had, I mentioned Python training. He said, oh, we had a guy who does it. So the, the more crystal clear your job description, your specialty is, the more likely you're to stand out. Again, a smaller audience, but one that needs your help much more, obviously. Mm -hmm. This is so cool. I, I really learned a lot during this podcast, room, I have to say. And um, I hope the audience as well. Are there any last words from you that you want to, to tell the audience? Um, just keep learning. Enjoy learning. Learn, learn, find a way. I just said this to someone recently, and I, I like it. Find a way to get people to pay you to learn the things you enjoy. Um, right. If you can do that, that, that's the best. And if people want to be in touch with me, it would be delightful to hear from them. Um, really, I love hearing from people around the world. And if I can help them out in their careers, it really makes me happy as well. That's great. Yeah. And as promised, I will put the link to your book from uh, Manning Publications down in the description. And people can save 40% if they use the discount code also in the description. I really hope they will get it because I have it and I have to get started. I have to admit. So. <laughs> But I read through it. It's really exciting and how you wrote it and so on. It's really, I have to say, it's a really good book, uh, Ruben. Uh, with that being said, um, I hope to see you in the future somewhere, maybe in a second part. Who knows? And I wish you all the best on your journey. Thank you, Joseph. It's great that you invited me here. It's really a pleasure to, to be on. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye.